Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And we are your co-hosts. And today, I am talking about the Yeti. Ooh, I'm excited for the Yeti. Um, We've been, so our schedule has been like kind of funky the last couple of months because, you know, the holidays and then Austin had another ice apocalypse. Um. We had initially, I think, scheduled for this meeting for this episode to come out sometime in December and like early January. So y'all enjoy a Valentine's Day Yeti. You're welcome. But also, I would I do just want to say up top, um, happy late in bulk. That yeah. was this, that was this weekend. So yeah, happy late in bulk, happy uh Leo New Moon uh, when we're recording this, which she's out here. Um well, I'm today I'm talking about Horsetail and Heimdall. So I've got kind of an interesting combo. And Horsetail ended up being a lot more than I expected. And it's like not a plant that I've personally worked with, but now I kind of want to. And we're going to like talk about it. But before we get into that, Nick, when did you feel magical this week? Well, actually, I will say that um, as of the time of recording... It is Monday, so yesterday was Sunday, and um, even though we did have a catastrophic ice storm last week, it was like 72 degrees yesterday, and um, me and my friend, who shall remain nameless for the time being, um, went out and enjoyed a lovely walk around the little lake in Mueller, and then just kind of sat there soaking up the sun like lizards on a rock, and... Wow. Um, Yes. Sitting there soaking up the sun like a lizard on a rug was really the kind of peak spiritual moment of the week for me. Oh, fuck yeah. And like, we're just going to say on the podcast, uh, Austin's ice apocalypse was one half of why we didn't have an episode last week. I also went to New York for a work conference. So sorry, y'all. Last week was fucking crazy. But we're back. Um, so for me, I'm like... We're going to have a real talk corner. I have not felt fucking magical in the past week. Like work has been really tough. My emotional shit has been going haywire. Like I am just like feeling super overwhelmed in my life. I did all of my gardening this weekend and was like, yeah. And then there was crazy wind last night that knocked over a bunch of my shit, blew more trash into my garden. And then I got home today and found that a fucking squirrel had dug up my herb box that I just planted. So you know what? It happens. And I just, I was like thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? I want uh, to let everyone know that uh, most of the time I try to find the magic in the week. But like, if you have a week where you don't, it's fine. Because shit happens sometimes. Ooh. But you know what? I actually have one that I can offer you um, as a backup. Oh, good. Because um, I was inside with not much else to do. Uh, and it is about that time where the last freeze should have already happened or, you know, hopefully that's it. But climate um, change is a hell of a drug. I started my moonflower seeds. <gasps> Yay! Yeah, oh, and, that does make me happy. And, okay, so um, I did soak them overnight. Like you're supposed to, good job. Like you're supposed to. And then I'm starting them on a paper towel, um, damp paper towel in a bag, you know, sunniest spot in the room. Heck yeah. Um, and today I have a nice little taproot growing <gasps> out of one. Oh my God, that does make my heart happy. So Especially since I've been a cranky pants. Um. I love that. I just mostly wanted to just be like, look, y'all, we host a podcast, but um, that doesn't mean that I remember to pull my tarot cards every day and I don't forget about fucking putting out water to make moon water. And I don't have weeks where I'd rather just curl up in a ball and stop existing than have to function in this like culture. So <laughs> anyway, just like if you're having a rough time, I see you. I, we're coming up on the end of our Saturn return, and I feel like I'm getting backloaded with some of this shit, which I think is also part of it. But anyway, let's talk about something that makes me very happy. We're going to talk about plants. Are you ready to talk about oh, plants? Oh, yeah. I'm ready to talk about horsetail. I'm so, excited to talk about it. Um, I Just right up top, I love that the plant is called horsetail. 
Uh, me too. And you're going to love some of these other common names too. So obviously we've got like field horsetail, common horsetail, horsetail grass, corn horsetail, horsetail fern. And then we get into mare's tail, horse willow, shave grass, scouring rush, Dutch rushes, horsetail rush, foxtail rush, pewter wart, bottle brush, shave brush, joint grass, pineweed, snake grass, puzzle grass, uh, pipes, bull pipes, toad pipe, pipe weed, paddock pipes, devil's guts, uh, cue de cheval, meadow pine, and candoc. Uh, there's a lot. Um, cause I just want to say that snake grass does and puzzle grass do do kind of strike me as very fun as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and honestly, shout out to Devil's Guts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, we went there. So the Latin name is um, Equisitum, which is actually like a species name. But when herbalists are talking about horsetail, they're typically referring to like one of a few species. So including E. arvensi, uh, E. hamale. E. fluvitali, E. silvaticum, E. palustre, E. pretensi, E. telmatea, and E. maximum. And this is this is going to make sense more once I tell you a little bit more about this plant, that there's so many species. But these are from the um, Equisitaceae family, which, again, we're getting equa coming from equine horse so most of the 20 species are native to temperate and Arctic regions of the Northern Hemisphere. So you're going to have them in North America, uh, all over Eurasia, North Africa. It loves like a river, a stream, a swamp, a lake moment. Think wet, humid, not Los Angeles. But it's it's an interesting little dude, okay? So this is a flowerless perennial that reproduces via spores, so it reproduces like a, like a fern, basically. So it develops multiple stems from a creeping rhizome. And the stems, like the early stems, aren't photosynthetic, which, okay. So they show up in early spring and they look kind of like asparagus. And they're like these brown they look sticks. A, they look a lot like asparagus. They do. They do. So you got these like sticks growing up out of the ground. And they're usually like brown or yellow tan in that first year. Um, or green, depending on the species. But the stems are sheaths of jointed nodes, right? With like four to six whorls of brown scale leaves. So scale leaves are like, if you think about like shingles on a house, right? I mean, or like asparagus, like they're not actually jutting out. But they don't actually have any branchlets on those first, like the early um, reeds that you get. And they're topped with these cute little things that are called sporangia cones. And they're real cute. Like give it a Google, the sporangia, I don't know what it is. This I is think I mean, very cute. The, I think this is maybe where we're getting the snake grass. Yeah, definitely. Those like because I can I can see ones. like a little you know like a little snake head like poke you know little grass snakes when they like poke up to look around like yeah something about the way these look though I'm like don't they seem like they should be in a Miyazaki film? Okay, they're really cute, but I'm struggling here, Shannon, because I feel like whoever named this had never seen a horsetail. Oh, you just wait. So <laughs> these are like their early stems, right? So once these are shed after the first year, they're replaced by these green, stiff, hollow, and deeply grooved stems of sterile shoots, which produce branchlets at the nodes, and they kind of like whirl out and they have these like thin little leaves and they end up looking like mini pine trees. Which again, that's not what a horsetail looks like. No, but like, you know, use your No, I get I get it. Turn your I head sideways. Think about a funky. No, but they they're super cute. Um, so something else interesting about these is that different species vary like one fuck ton in height. So um the E. arvensi typically is like one to two feet tall. Um, e. Himale can reach like five feet. But there's also the Mexican giant horsetail, which is E. mirocatum. And it commonly grows between six to 15 feet tall. And the largest recorded specimen was 24 feet tall. It's tree sized. They get that's real, a, real big. That's a, that's a two story house. Yeah, that's a big ass horsetail. Like, that's the fucking, like, what is it? The sleepy horse? What's the horse from fucking magicians? Oh. 
Um, I think it might be called Sleepy Horrors. Something like that. Anyway, it's fucking big. So to harvest these, you're going to cut sterile shoots just above the base in late spring or early summer. And then after the tops begin to droop, you got to keep an eye on it because they lose some of their medicinal actions and they become harsher on your kidneys. But now that I've, I've told y'all what it looks like, but let's talk about why there are so many fucking species, right? So this is an ancient plant. This plant has been around for, drumroll please, 200 million years. Cozy horse. Cozy horse, thank you. So cozy horse has been around for 200 million years. Um, sometimes it's referred to as a living fossil. And my favorite fact I learned about it is that when dinosaurs walked the earth, horsetail plants that were the size of giant pine trees dominated the forest landscapes. I could easily see a little dino ha having a munch. It does right. look tasty. It does look like, I just feel like if I was a dinosaur, I would find this incredibly tasty. Yeah. So obviously the ones we know today are a bit smaller, but I just, I think it's so cool that like dinosaurs were walking around in fucking forests of horsetail with their feathers. Dinosaurs had feathers. <laughs> Truth facts. So horsetail was used by early settlers, but even like campers today use it to scrub pots and pans because it has like a stiff, gritty texture. It was even uh, at different points in time used to sand wood or even polish metal. So like Native Americans would use it to sand arrow shafts and like knights in Europe would use it to shine their armor. Uh, there's also a great Eastern European legend that says that forest sprites can shape shift into horsetail plants as a form of disguise. So be wary. It could be, is it a horsetail? Is it a forest sprite? Time will tell. So it's it's a really cool plant, though, I think, to get into the history with because like native people from all over the place have used like their specific local species of horsetail. But the first ever recorded use for like herbalism stuff was by Roman physician Galen. He recommended it for uh, severed ligaments and tendons, as well as nosebleeds. Um, our buddy, astrologer, herbalist Culpepper, used it to staunch internal and external bleeding and for healing wounds. Ancient Chinese practitioners used it for arthritis, again, wound healing, and even hemorrhoids. But let's talk about medicinal actions. I'm, I'm not getting into how to grow this one. This isn't one that's like super friendly for growing DIY, like forage for it, buy it from your herbalist, guys. Sometimes I don't, I don't want to talk about growing a plant that's like, just don't. You got, you got room in your garden for other things. So Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. This podcast is not intended to treat or diagnose anything. Please always talk to your doctor before you start any new herbal regimen. Don't get medical advice from a podcast. Y'all are smarter than that. So up top, I got to talk about like a couple of things that you have to keep in mind with horsetail. So first, it has a really high silica content that can be irritating to the GI tract. Um, Matthew Wood, who's an herbalist that I love, y'all have heard me talk about him before, he actually recommends not ingesting the plant itself, but only extractions like tinctures or decoctions. So that's one way to get around that. Um, but it also contains uh, thiaminase, which is an enzyme that can deplete thiamine, uh, otherwise known as vitamin B1 levels in the body with long-term use. And they, there's a few ways they know this. Like, first of all, they've, they've observed thiamine depletion in horses and other livestock after consuming large quantities of the plant. Um, it's also shown up in lab tests. So one way to avoid this is, number one, choosing preparations that employ high temperatures because that can kind of destroy that thiaminase. Um, but you could also supplement with B vitamins while you're taking horsetail. Again, it's like this isn't necessarily something you're going to be using as a tonic and taking every day, but you know, it, it doesn't hurt to maybe add in a B supplement if you're going to be taking it for a little bit of time. Um, there's also really high selenium contents in horsetail. So uh, if you're pregnant or nursing, you shouldn't use it because it can cause birth defects. And if a kid is under two, they definitely shouldn't have it. Up until they're like 12, you really got to like monitor how much they have. But again, it's like, this is why you need to work with an herbalist. Um, and then finally, like special caution needs to be taken if you have cardiac disease or high blood pressure. Uh, again, only use under professional care. Don't take it for extended periods. It's also contraindicated for people suffering from edema because of impaired heart or kidney function. So there's, there's always like disclaimers. I just know horsetail is one that I'm like, again, 
maybe don't fucks with taking it internally by yourself. You know, there's some stuff that I'm like, yeah, you can drink a nettle tea and you're most likely going to be fine. Horsetail, I'm like, you know, you want to talk to someone that's a professional, someone that's studied for a long time, because it just has some interactions that you have to be aware of, not to say that you should never use it. So I, I don't want this to feel like I'm saying stay away from horsetail. Don't just be smart. Okay. Now with that out of the way, um, one of the uses we see in modern times for horsetail is as a diuretic. So it has a great affinity for your urinary tract because it's both a tonic and an astringent. And so sometimes you'll see it recommended for like incontinence, like when your bladder is weak and like maybe prone to dribbling, like, you know, that happens as people age. Uh, sometimes for like kids that are older than two, they've also used it for bedwetting. So that's something that I've seen. Some people will also recommend it for inflammation of the prostate, you know, just that whole like association with your urinary tract. Horsetail, again, contains a shitload of silica, which gives it a great affinity for your body's structural bits. So we're thinking like bones, ligaments, cartilage, arteries, even skin. So one of the ways that Matthew Wood recommends using it is to help in like mending broken bones and even surgical recovery for the elderly. He also recommends it for osteoporosis, and sometimes it's used for arthritic joint erosion, too. So a recipe I've seen is, like, something with, like, Solomon seal along with horsetail, sort of as, like, a one-two punch. And they did do a study that found people with rheumatoid arthritis uh, showed marked improvement after being treated with horsetail. And we know the RA is, like, a bitch. It shows up early for a lot of people. Nick, I know you've got some in your family with RA, so it's, like, you know... That's no, something you definite, deal with. Definitely, it's one of those things, too, that, like, it's, I mean, you know, like, Talia has to see a rheumatologist. Um, yep. And it's just, like, you know, it's, people are like, oh, well, you know, it's like all old people get arthritis. And it's like, no, actually, that's different. Yeah, it's different. Rheumatoid arthritis <laughs> is, like, a, a, a very specific type of, like, um, Oh God, why am I blinking on what the term for that it's is? Auto, it's an autoimmune. Thank you. Thank you. Autoimmune. It's like an autoimmune disease. So it, it doesn't, RA doesn't give a shit how old you are. No, <laughs> like, yeah. Your body's just like, fuck these joints. Yeah. Your body's like, these joints here, we're going to fuck them up. You're never going to be able to put on a ring because this is an asshole. So um, <laughs> there's, there's also this thing in, you'll see it sometimes in like alternative medicine sphere where people will say that like silica depletion in the body can have negative symptoms, things like increased allergies, a weakened bladder lining. I'm not here to say silica depletion is or is not a thing. There are different opinions on it. But in these instances, especially if someone has like a cool constitution, an herbalist or a practitioner like might recommend horsetail for that as well because of the silica. Um, I did also mention skin and specifically... It's used to help with dandruff and other scalp conditions. So like to prevent hair loss and encourage hair growth. Um, to, and even to like lessen your scalp's oil secretions. And one of the ways that you can use it is to decoct the herb and use it as a rinse or add a small bit of the tincture to your shampoo. And I'm getting like mane and tail, like horse girl vibes. I, it just made well, me think of mane and tail when everyone used that for their shampoo. I just also think... Um you know, the, the selenium you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Interesting to me is that that is one of the main ingredients in grocery, you know, like regular dandruff shampoo. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you could even just add to your favorite shampoo that doesn't destroy your hair because dandruff shampoo often is not very healthy for your hair because they're real focused on the scalp, which is important. But, um, you know, you still do have hair there. But I, I think the idea of adding maybe like some tea tree and tincture of horsetail to a regular shampoo could maybe be a gentler alternative to try before you get into some of the more hardcore dandruff shampoos. Like, well, and also this this next thing that you're go ahead and go ahead and mention the, the next action. Uh, yeah. So it's also an antifungal and we know that fungus can be involved in scalp conditions, particularly with your dandruff. <laughs> because I actually learned last year after, I mean, I am a 31 year old man. Okay. And I have had dandruff my entire life. I also, unfortunately for me, a love to wear black. 
clothing and also have very, very, very dark brown hair. So it's really something that was like, I mean, for the aesthetic of it all, you cannot have black hair and have bad dandruff. Like, Yeah, it's like a neon sign that says, hi, I have dandruff. And I learned last year that my dandruff was actually fungal. And I started using a fungal treatment instead of like Head and Shoulders or Selsun Blue or whatever these selenium-based products. And it's gone. Yeah. I mean, it's gone. Look, horsetail could help. Of I course, think that, talk, talking about it is actually making my scalp itch. Though. I know my head just started itching thinking about <laughs> it too because, like, I have been, I, I like have to work on my dandruff now that I've dyed my hair dark because it's like just even a little bit is so obvious when you have dark hair. And, like, y'all, no shame. Dandruff is like pretty normal. Most people have it to some degree. So maybe just try a little bit of horsetail and fucking tea tree oil in your shampoo. Also, get yourself a scalp massager because that is like a game changer for scalp health and also luxurious. But that antifungal action um, is great because it's it's used for things like athlete's foot. But my favorite thing that I saw is some people use a tea or decoction of it to help treat fungal diseases in the garden. In particular, I saw some people talking about using it for like roses because one of the most common fungicides that you'll see, fungicides, I should say, that you'll see in gardening is like copper based. And over time, like using a bunch of copper in your garden can cause like heavy metal buildup in your soils. And if you're someone who, you know, also wants to like grow things to eat, you know, you kind of want to be careful with what you're using. So something like horsetail might be a good alternative to try first before you get into like more intensive fungicides. So for that, I would recommend doing something like horsetail and chamomile tea together because well, I think they're both great for fungus. And, you know, this just makes perfect sense to me, too, because if you are a plant that grows via rhizomes and is reproducing through spores, that does mean that you're competing with funguses or yeah. fungi instead of other plants. So it would yeah. kind of make sense that this plant would have this kind of antifungal property to kind of nix the competition. Yeah, exactly. It's great. Um, so again, to harvest, you're cutting your sterile shoots just above the base late spring, early summer. Once the tops are drooping, game over, leave it alone. But when you're drying fresh horsetail harvest, you actually have to like break open the stems at their joints to drain the water because it'll like rot the herb otherwise. But I'm talking so much about Matthew Wood this week. I'm sorry. But he does say that like some of the most potent actions of the plant are in that water. So it's it's good to include that in fresh preparations when possible. So like for a tincture, you could actually put the whole aerial parts into a blender or a food processor and then like add that to your mix before. Um, so like you're going to put all of it, including the water into the blender. And then you're going to add that to whatever tincture base you're using if you're doing this and there's going to be a higher water content, like you really do need to make sure you're finding like at least a hundred proof uh, alcohol, ideally even something higher. You could look for like an Everclear. Just remember if there's water present, there's more opportunity for funky shit to grow. So if you're making a tincture with a, a high water content plant, you want to make sure that you're like really killing off any baddies. Um, but again, like a horsetail tincture or a strong decoction is really like the recommended way to go with horsetail. So let's talk about magic, right? I love this plant because it's also a Saturnian herb. I love Saturn. Saturn rules my chart. Saturn is my daddy. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I I like to just kind of plug here is you have to remember astrological herbalism. So as a Saturnian herb, it's associated with structure. So, you know, like your bones, your connective tissues. And I think for witchy people that are getting into herbalism, if you have a background in astrology, understanding the planetary associations of plants can also help you sort of remember the different actions. So that's just like a study tip. If you're into astrological herbalism, it's nerdy, whatever. I love it. But because it's Saturnian, it's dope for like magic about boundaries, Maybe you could use it in conjunction with Heimdall, which is a teaser for later. 
Um, but it's associated also with the earth element. I think a lot of like rhizomatous plants are, it makes sense. They literally creep within the earth. So I've seen it suggested for rituals to help protect you, um, like against an attack of your psychic space. So using it as part of like a daily sort of work with affirmations, you know, you can add some of the tincture to maybe like a spray that you use either in your space or on your body if you don't end up having sensitivity to it. I love magically charged body sprays. So you can take, you know, a tincture using a high proof like alcohol, add moon water from whatever phase you're channeling, like do your mixture of tinctures, add your moon water, you know, maybe drop in a water safe crystal, shake it up, spritz yourself magic on the go. You know, like that stuff I think is like the kind of low lift magic that can be really helpful when you're having weeks like I've been having. Um, it's also just keep in mind if you're looking into horsetail, it's considered invasive in some places as well. So if that applies to your local species, maybe think about using it for fertility rituals, you know, things that just like multiply bananas bonkers like crazy. They're great for fertility magic. But that that Saturn energy, in addition to like boundaries, I think also makes it really useful for things like cleansing essentially emotional rubble, right? Like when you're trying to get rid of shit that's no longer serving you, dropping the shit that isn't helpful anymore. That's when like Saturn is great at that. Saturn is really good at being like, no, you've got to like, you got to get rid of some shit. That way Jupiter can come in and expand. But you got to get rid of things before you have that space. So for magic, you can, again, like you can totally make a tea, but I think this is a great candidate for an herbal bath. I think if you're making the tincture, again, you can add some drops of tincture to your bath as well if you don't want to deal with a fresh herb bath. I think they're so aesthetic, right? To like put flowers in the bath is so aesthetic, but then practically it doesn't feel cute when they're all stuck to the tub once the water drains, let's be honest. So, you know, you can put those herbs in like a clean sock, but you could also think about using tinctures for different plants. Like I made a chamomile tincture and I'm definitely going to be using that in my baths. So again, it also has healing properties. So healing magic and baths hand in hand. We all know that Nick and I are bath witches. So yeah, so that's it for horsetail. I know this was kind of long. I didn't expect horsetail to be so intense, but here we are. Um, so my sources were the herbarium, um, obviously a lot of different Matthew Wood stuff, starchild.co.uk, witchinthewoodsbotanicals.com, and hoodoowitch.net. Love, love, love. Still, still doesn't look much like a horsetail. I'll say it. <laughs> I love that, it. that Nick is just roasting <clears throat> like the ancient people who started calling this horsetail. You're like, no, fuck y'all. Have you ever seen a horse? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, you guys. So, in the long-awaited revival of the Magical Creatures segment, I'm talking about the Yeti. Come through, Yeti. Come through. Yes, mama. <laughs> so, um, and actually, I do think a great place to start is to set a few things straight. Um, so, first off, the abominable snowman moniker is actually a mistranslation. In the Sherpa language, the Yeti is called Mito Kongmi, which means man bear snowman. Ooh. Um, but Henry Newman, who was a writer for a Calcutta-based English language newspaper called The Statesman in the 1920s, mistranslated it as filthy snowman, uh, and then decided that abominable sounded cooler Okay, uh, so, wow, white people messed yeah. something up? Yeah, white people uh, messed something up, I know. Shocking, news at 11. Um, so apologies to everyone who grew up watching Stop Motion Rudolph, but we will not be using that name in this podcast. I mean, it feels kind of disrespectful. Um, but speaking of Stop Motion Rudolph, there's another thing that's bugging me, having spent the better part of the last couple days reading Yeti lore, and that is that the Yeti is never described as being white. Interesting. So even on the Wikipedia page, it says that the Yeti is described as being white. But when you read actual descriptions of people who claim to have seen a Yeti, never once 
are they like and it was white like not not once not ever we get a lot of black and brown and a few rusty shades of orangutan fur Mm. but never ever ever white I mean, all of this color combination, though, is, like, leading me to believe that there might be a torty Yeti somewhere. Like, a I, sweet little torty Yeti baby. Well, one of the uh, one of the animals that they caught that they thought might be a Yeti ended up being an ocelot that lost all of its hair due to disease. Oh, poor baby. Um, I, But I do like the idea of the feline Yeti. Mm, yeah. It'd be fun. But... There's also an issue of height. So yes, there are description of man-sized or bigger yetis, but there's also quite a few where the yeti is described as being the size of a small child. Um, one Sherpa mountain guide um, said that the yetis are uh, the size of seven-year-old children. So cute little yetis. I just have to say seven-year-old children is so specific. Yeah, no, well, I, I kind of thought so too. But that's what that's what he said. So, um, but I like the idea, cute little yetis, little just yeah, little guys, like little pocket sized friends. Um, but actually, one of the things that the Sherpas do say uh, is that they talk about there being three kinds of yetis. So there's sort of the lowland yeti, which is like the little people yeti, tiny little guys. Just cute little guys, right? And then there's kind of the medium altitude Yeti, which is a vegetarian, but very big. And then there's the high altitude Yeti, which is as big as the middle altitude Yeti, but is strictly carnivorous. So that's the one you don't want to run into. Um, That's the scary one, right? But uh, I do think one of the biggest surprises, though, is that they're, the, the lore of the Getty is truly ancient. So uh, just to kind of lean into some Western history for one second, in 326 BC, while conquering the Indus Valley, the Alexander the Great, who had clearly already heard legends of this creature, demanded to see one in person. And of course, being in the lowlands, the Indus Valley is, uh, you know, just about at sea level, um, the you know he was informed that the creature could not survive at such low altitudes, being so specialized to mountain living. So they were like, "You're basically going to have to go go up to the mountains and see it for yourself." And he was like, "I'm Alexander the Great. I got a lot of other shit I need to do. So uh, maybe next time." Um, but it, it's you know sort of like basically what they were saying. Those you know those deep sea fish that sort of look like regular fish, but then when you bring them up to the surface, they turn into globs of jelly because the, the pressure difference. Um, so they were like, yeah, you, you can't just bring a Yeti down to sea level. It'll explode or something. Um, but there is also some really interesting local lore around the Yeti that predates the introduction of Buddhism to places like Tibet and Nepal. So in Tibet, before the time of Buddhism, they worshipped a god called Bone, B-O-N, but with the with the little uh, umlaut over the the O, so bone, bone, uh, bone. Who bone was a daddy. who was a hunting god who is also known as the glacier being, uh, and that is that is a translation. Um, to I mean, glacier being is cooler than bone. Bone, yeah, but um, whose blood was magic and who demanded a yearly sacrifice to provide protection. And actually, I think how they did this sacrifice, I think was really interesting. So they would go up to a little plateau on the mountain, right? And, um, you know, it could be a sheep, it could be a goat, some kind of livestock animal, perhaps a yak. You had to, it demanded a yearly sacrifice though. And what you would do is basically cut open the belly of the animal that you were sacrificing and um, slowly kind of pull out the intestines, um, sort of like a really demented bloody rosary. And then the whole time you're kind of thinking about the, uh, the protection that you want for your village or tribe or whatever. Uh, and then as you're kind of pulling out the intestines, you just sort of throw loop after loop after loop over the animal's head, almost like a lasso. Um, 
you know, like when you're wrapping up your your garden hose or whatever. So isn't that fun? The slow, I mean, the slower the better. Fun is a word for it. <laughs> um. So this this god bone though, right? Apparently gets busy with this um sort of mountain ogre giantess creating a race of half-breeds that are basically become the six original tribes of Tibet. And because they're half-ogre, half-glacier being, uh, they look like monkeys. And so this original race, being half-god, is very long-lived, but eventually they sort of interbreed with the local people and the Tibetan people come into being but sort of the original ones being you know conditionally immortal like an alligator um like you can stab an alligator to death but an alligator does not die of old age or disease so kind of kind of the vibe right yeah with the yetis so uh, some of these original half ogre half glacier being creatures are kind of still walking around up in the mountains is is part of the legend. Um, but be, because of this sort of divine origin too, people in Tibet and Nepal do see yetis as um, sort of guardians of like temples and shrines and sacred spaces. So there's kind of like a, like a moralistic element to it as well. Um, and they do revere the yeti as a religious figure in both Nepal and Tibet um and you know it's like DNA has kind of proven that it's not real but they do have like the yeti scalp at a, a temple in Nepal and they have a a yeti finger bone at a temple in Tibet um you know so they really do kind of see this thing as a, like a spiritual figure um I mean can I just say, I didn't expect that this episode would turn out to be about guardians. Right, right, right. Are. But, you know, in Nepal, um, the Nepalese tradition with the Yeti is that there's these sort of protective spirits of mountain passes. And that's what the Yeti is. Um, but there's also sort of this element, um, you know, because they've been introduced to Hinduism and Buddhism, that the Yeti, whilst not being a human creature, um, is sort of aware of Dharma, which is this sort of idea that the universe has a universal law of right and wrong, right? And that the Yeti, this Yeti creature, is sort of the uh, enforcer of Dharma. So if you see the Yeti, you need to repent because you it's a it's an omen that you are not following dharma wow i mean so it's kind of like a spiritual mothman sort of like a spiritual mothman yes but also okay i did want to get into some of the um the yeti side action if you will um I'm because not. because okay so while the yeti in name only is only found in nepal and tibet um, there's very similar legends from Pakistan, Russia, China, India, and Mongolia. So this thing, this phenomenon is pretty widespread. But, um, so one of the legends that I read was that the Yeti um, does not breed with its own kind. Oh, it's one of those. Um, so it will occasionally come down out of the mountains and and i thought this was interesting pop off by king or queen or uh they them are um you know we're not trying to put the yeti in a box but sometimes it it will be a man or a woman so um anyway we'll come down out of a mountain and just take someone away to breed with i mean look what are you going to do? <laughs> so, um, but then also, the Yeti uh, is sort of involved in death 
So one of the interesting things that I read was that um, the Yeti is actually sort of part of the gateway to death. I, do you know about sky burials? No. So a sky burial um, is something that happens in a lot of the Buddhist parts of the Himalayas, where they take your body um, up to a mountaintop and they hack you up into pieces with an axe. And then eat you over the edge? No, 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 oh, no. And then the vultures come. Oh, they feed you to carry-on birds. They feed you to these vultures up in the, the, the high Arctic or the high Himalayas. And that's why they call it a sky burial is because the, the vultures come and eat you and then fly away into the sky. Cute. Um, but the Yeti is seen as this kind of like death-related figure too. So again, with this concept of Dharma and this universal order, like seeing a Yeti at one of these funerals um, is sort of like a good sign because they have this spiritual significance. Um, but also the, the kind of death Yeti, right, is said to be hollow on the inside and you can see from the back that it's hollow. That's fucking spooky. And then also, like, the Death Yeti has its feet reversed. I so never want to run into a Death Yeti. So if you see the Yeti's tracks in the snow, it, they'll be on the wrong side. Um, no, thank you. But yeah, so... Obviously, they say that the Bigfoot legend and the Skunk Ape legend and many of these other kind of, like, large bipedal ape legends um are are kind of related you know I, I did read something that was saying that um gigantopithecus they have found evidence that gigantopithecus um might have survived into cohabitating with modern humans uh especially in sort of southeast asia um their closest living relatives interestingly enough are orangutans Dude, orangutans are fucking terrifying to me. Orangutans are kind of scary, but, you know, orangutan means people of the forest. Um, you know, there is this kind of vibe that orangutans are suspiciously close to people in their behavior. It's like that uncanny valley syndrome that freaks me out with them, where it's like, oh, you're almost us. It's like you're almost us. I mean, you, they make little hats out of leaves. I know. It, I mean, look, mad respect, but they're fucking scary. Like, But, okay, one thing I do want to say, though, is that, um, you know, and I, we've talked about this before, about how the sizes of things are sort of misrepresented on maps a lot. Like, yeah, like the United States looking like the same size as Africa. Exactly, exactly what I mean. So uh, sort of another good example of that is that Tibet, or I mean, you know, when Tibet is part of China now. Whatever. We love Tibet. We love Tibet. Free Tibet. You know, whatever. Um, what I will say, though, is that the actual country of Tibet, as it was before the china thing twice the size of france twice the size of france okay well that just blew my mind i didn't realize that it was that off on like the scale that you usually see on maps when you look at it on a map it looks tiny yeah I mean, it does not look that big but if you look at the same map i'm sure france looks huge yeah but tibet is fully twice the size <laughs> of France. That's bananas. Now, something that's interesting too is that in the Himalayas there are val whole valleys that have probably never had a western person step foot in them. Yeah. Because they are so hard to get to. So I personally am kind of uh, on team like there's a lot of space there for something big. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's literal tigers and bears and shit that live in this area that you never really see because they have so much space. Yeah, they don't have to fucks with humans, so, so they don't. So it's not out of the question. 
What I will also say, kind of going to the Bigfoot thing, is that, you know, like, Bigfoot is Pacific Northwest, a fully settled and colonized part of the world. Like, Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland are all, like, an hour's drive away from each other. Like, I just don't see that there's really that kind of space there. Yeah, I mean, that's where you get into the whole idea of, like, Sasquatch being, like, able to move between realities, which is, like, one of the cryptid theories about Sasquatch. Right. Y'all, I love weird cryptid shit. Um, As shocking as that might be to our listeners. Uh, But no, I get what you say. It's like, I get what you're saying. It's like, it's the thing where it's like the photographs are always blurry and either he's straight up coming from a different dimension or like, that's a weird bear. Or that's a weird bear. (laughs) And you know, and you know what I will say is that like, I do think with the whole Tibet, Nepal, Pakistan area, there's room for something like that there. Now, I'm yeah. not saying I'm like a true believer. I think but, it's... I but think you're it's not saying you're not a true believer. But I'm not saying that I have been convinced. I I think I could make a pretty good argument for Bigfoot not existing. But I personally cannot make like a super convincing argument for the Yeti possibly not existing. You know? Okay. Well, y'all heard it here first, folks. I'm gonna I'm gonna share one last fact about the Yeti, and that is that um, across cultures and across time, one fact remains consistent in every report about the Yeti, and that is that the Yeti smells terrible. <laughs> okay, I mean, look, can we just say that's a real dick move for that to be the through line here? Look, I get it. I'm just saying, it's like that's the one thing, like. All, all of the Yeti stories, every single one is like, the Yeti smells terrible. Ooh, <laughs> I did want to talk about um, something that I thought was fun, like another se- sort of Yeti special power, right? Was that if the Yeti sees you before you see it, um, you're n- no longer able to walk, and that's how the Yeti um, kills you, catches you. Oh, I hate that. But if you smell the Yeti, you're supposed to look for the Yeti. Because if you see the Yeti before the Yeti sees you, then you'll be able to get away. Okay, well, just a little bit more nightmare fuel. So here we go. Um, But that's all I have. Um, You know, I I think, you know, just some, some key points here. The Yeti is not white. The Yeti's never been white. The Yeti is possibly a langur monkey or an orangutan. Um, or a tiny little hobbit guy, little hobbit yetis. So you got options. You got options, and um, just really, really smelly, <laughs> stinky friend. Well, let's like get into it because this episode has been fun. Um, Heimdall is like a big one as far as he's a big deal, but he's not one of the more thoroughly covered of the Norse gods, and there's no sign that there was like a Heimdall uh, cult. So it was definitely one of those, like, wait, have we actually, like, not covered this yet? But we haven't, so let's get into it. Uh, Heimdall was one of Odin's many sons, because we know all father Odin had many sons. Uh, and he had, according to, uh, I think it's the Poetic Edda, had nine mothers, all sea maidens, uh, Yolp, Gripe, Isla, uh, Iryafa, Ulfrun, Engia, Imp, Atla, and Yarnsaksa. I'm really sorry for any of our Norse listeners. Um, So some scholars actually do think, though, that that's like a reference to the nine daughters of Aegir and Ron, which are personifications of waves, which means Heimdall is potentially born from the sea, which I think makes more sense than like nine literal mothers, because I can't, I don't get it. I don't get how that would work. Um, But Heimdall has some cool claims to fame, right? Including that he requires less sleep than a bird. This was one that I was very interested in coming up over and over again. Like, okay, humble brag, you don't sleep a lot. That's called insomnia. Um, He can hear grass growing in the meadows and wool growing on sheep. And he can see for a hundred leagues. Like, again, that last one feels legit. He's got great hearing. Great. It's weird to me that he doesn't sleep a lot. But he's sometimes referred to as like the watchman of the gods. So it makes sense that he would 
you know, I guess be awake and alert all the time. So he lives at the entry to Asgard, though, which is where he guards um, Bifrost, which is called Bifrost in the Thor movies, um, which sounds like, I don't know, like a bisexual eyeliner, like. Oh, my God. Like line, right? Like. I'm going to release Bifrost, which is my collection of glittery metallic eyeliners. Um, Bifrost, like Bifrost sounds less weird to me. Um, but Although it does kind of sound like you're saying beef roast, like a delicious Sunday pot roast. I know, but you know what? It's the Rainbow Bridge. So whatever you call it, Bifrost, <laughs> Bifrost, it's the Rainbow Bridge, right? So that's the entry to Asgard. Um, some people also just fun fact speculate that the Rainbow Bridge is like a reference to the Milky Way, which I think is super cool and makes a lot of sense, you know, with the fact that people used to be able to see the sky. Um, so Heimdall is a keeper of borders and boundaries, aka liminal spaces, which we love. But again, who knew that boundaries and guardians was the theme of this episode? We actually did. Not it always that. happens. It always fucking happens that yeah. like, the themes converge. They do. Um, so Heimdall, though, in addition to being like a watchman for Asgard and keeping, you know, beef roast very safe, um, he's the keeper of a very special horn, a uh, Yaller horn which will be blown to wake up the Aesir during Ragnarok. So <clears throat> there was this seeress, which is like a seer, but a lady, um, who prophesied that during Ragnarok, uh, the Bifrost will break and Heimdall and Loki will fight to the death. So, you know, Loki and Heimdall have some beef, <laughs> which we'll get into, um, but we've got Heimdall as like this big bad guardian but he's also called the father of mankind, which I think is like kind of cool work. You know, he's the god who's most closely linked with Yggdrasil, the tree of life. Um, he's the god who granted humans wisdom. And then on like a less cool note, social order, you know, this whole idea of like different orders in society. We don't love that. But wisdom, Yggdrasil, awesome. So again, I mentioned earlier, like, Loki and Heimdall, uh, you know, have a little bit of beef, but it's not like the only way, like this prophecy isn't the only place that we get that info. So there's this story where Freya wakes up and her magical necklace is missing. You right, you might remember Freya's necklace as also being stolen by like the king of the giants. And then there's that whole thing where Thor dresses up and drag as Freya to go like steal back her necklace. Freya has some necklace drama. Um, but there's this time where she wakes up and it's missing. And it turns out that Loki stole it. So I'm like, insert shocked Pikachu face. Loki oh, stole something. Oh, crazy. What? That's so crazy. Shocking. Um, but Loki, being Loki, uh, transformed himself into a seal for this caper. Because Loki is a shapeshifter. So Heimdall, because he's like a, a nice dude also turns himself into a seal and he fights Loki to get Freya's fucking necklace back. Eventually he wins. So, you know, um, Heimdall and Loki's beef goes way back. So I, I have to also mention, like, he's sometimes called the shining god or the whitest of the gods. So, like, there's some, like, weird connection to white supremacy that we're not going to talk about. But, like, gross, not approved of by Wands and Franz fucking get the hell out of Norse mythology. Yes. Like, like can y'all stop, please? Yeah. Can you not? Um, so what if you want to work with Heimdall magically, though? This one was interesting because I've actually, I read like really mixed things. So some people that have tried to work with him say he's not super responsive. And people think that might be because he's like the guardian of this gateway. So maybe he's not like running around doing shit, you know, he's not over here delivering messages, but other people have had good luck working with him. So again, your mileage may vary. Deity work is complex. One of the ways though, that I did see coming up over and over for folks who do work with him is using him as like an intermediary to connect with other spiritual guides who have died. And I think this is kind of coming back into his role as like a gatekeeper you know really keeping the boundary between the living and the gods 
but you can of course also con him for protective magic. Um, I also like the idea of using him to like working with him when you're trying to go through like grief transitions, letting things go. But I also think, um, you know, they have this, I forget the name of the saint, but in Catholicism, there's like a, a patron saint of lost things. And I'm like, if you wanted to work with a God to help recover something that was lost, Heimdall will turn into a seal to get a necklace back. So like maybe, you know, if he ends up being your God, maybe that's something you can work with him on. Um, so obviously offerings featuring the color white, but I also love the idea of rainbows because of the rainbow bridge. Um, he was a warrior, so representations of weaponry. He's constantly compared to birds, so I think feathers. He is like really Saturnian. So, you know, it's like you could even think about using something like horsetail or other Saturnian herbs as offerings to a deity that has such Saturn energy. But he was, he's just interesting, like kind of short and sweet. But again, there's like no Heimdall like cult. He's, he shows up in stories, but there's not a lot of background on him because again, he's kind of like the bouncer for Asgard. So he's got like important business. He's, he's not got a, he's, he's got a real job. Yeah. He's got a, Heimdall's got a real job y'all. Like, sorry. So that's it. My source is today, Britannica. Um, historiska.se, Wikipedia, which is in pagans.com, and plenty of Reddit threads. A lot of people on Reddit had in, uh, interesting opinions about working with Heimdall, so that was fun. Wow. Do we want to do, do use some baby asks or just roll right into Taroscope? Um, let's do our baby asks. So, rate, review, subscribe, download the episode, email us, wandsandfranzpod at gmail.com, follow us on Instagram at wandsandfranzpod. There we go. Great. So for the taroscope this week, you guys, and um, seemingly right on time, although not quite right on time, but you know, we're gonna we're getting kind of close. We're getting kind of close. Um, Pisces. So for my Pisces babes, I drew the seven of wands upright. And um, what I'm getting from this reading is that you guys are kind of at the top of the pyramid right now, be it socially, be it financially, um, or you know, like even professionally, right? And people below you are gunning to take your place because they're jealous of you. Oof. But fear not, because there's a reason that you are succeeding where they haven't. So, uh, you know, sort of my advice to you is to keep gaslight gatekeep girl bossing your way all the way to the bank. I love this Instagram word salad. I mean, they do say it's like it's a lot easier to seize power than to keep it. So... You go, fishies. You go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I do think that there, maybe this is because I'm a double fire sign, but I think when people are jealous of you, that is one of the surest signs that you have made it. I mean, I did see this thing that was like one of those like super cheesy uh, reels. And it was like, of course, people are talking bad about you. It's because if they're talking about themselves, no one would listen. Yeah, <laughs> no, like, I okay. someone, someone sent that to me. Oh my god, I love it. Nick, I did get my hair cut by an Aries yesterday, by the way. I love that. She was great. I'm she never was... cutting my hair again. Uh I came home and touched up my own haircut because I'm psychotic, but <laughs> it was good. She was great. Um, she's gonna listen to the podcast. So if you're listening, Yvette. Much love. I only had to touch up my bangs because I'm insane. But I, I really did like the haircut. So. Well, yeah, it, it looks good. It Thank looks good. you. That did great work. Also, I'm loving I'm loving this dark moment for you. Me too. Me too. I'm feeling it. I'm like leaning into it. This it's is my shadow work year. It's kind of giving me like 2015 when you were doing black hair a lot then too. Yeah, I go through phases, but I do like it. I um I I recolored it this past weekend. It's it's plum. You can't really see it in this lighting, but it I can, it's like, I can I can see a bit of uh, uh of plum. Yeah, it's got a lot more purple tones in the light, but it is like uh I wanted my hair to be the color of like a cabernet. Mm, gorgeous. Okay. Well, um, what do we say to all the frigid Yeti bitches out there? Oh my god, to all of you frigid Yeti bitches, first of all, please put your feet on the right way. Second of all, blessed be bitches. <laughs> blessed be bitches. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye.
I finally put that Laramar on a chain. Oh, yay! That's so. awesome. I'm so glad it has, like, a good home. No, well, I, I, I had... I had it kind of like jerry rigged into an earring, but um, it did fall off. And I was like, yeah, we're not going to do that, especially not walking around, you, you know. Yeah, you're like, I don't want to drunk lose this. Yeah. That's like what that's asking for. I get it. I have drunk lost many things. <laughs>